bring you progressive voices from America's heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. Before I give you the rundown on today's lineup, let's take a second to thank some of our local business partners. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's my grocery store, and it's open seven days a week. The cafe is also open seven days a week for lunch and supper and for breakfast on the weekends. You can dine in. They've, got a, they've done a great job, really, of making it safe. Or you can use the uh, online uh, takeout service or call-in takeout service. Also, it's that time of the year to think about gateway gift cards. And for every $50 gift card you buy, you get an additional $10 gift card. Check it out, folks, at gatewaymarket.com. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis, offering planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance buildings. Architecture by Synthesis specializes in environmentally friendly designs, including highly insulated structures made from grain bins. That's Architecture by Synthesis. On today's program, we're going to be talking with Joe Gantz about his new film, Ending Disease, which explores stem cell therapy. We'll also be talking about how we stopped a coup. <laughs> a lot of analysis about that going on right now. And then uh, Pasha Morgan is going to join us. We're going to talk about fixing policing in the U.S. And finally, Kathy Burns will join us, and we'll do our final garden Q&A of the season. But first, in our climate update segment, I'm, I'm going to kick it off with a, a conversation about pipelines. And the big question is, will Joe Biden keep his promise to shut down the Dakota Access Pipeline, and the Keystone Pipeline. Because five years ago this month, President Obama canceled the permit for the Keystone XL Pipeline. And uh, by the way, for those of us who love the free market, we should be appalled at the government of Alberta, Canada. This is amazing. They gave $1.5 billion to the pipeline company. And then on that was a billion with a B, by the way. Illion with a B. And then it gave them another $6 billion on top of that. It's just crazy. Hey, free market, right? So uh, back to Obama. You know, on the way out the door in early December of 2016, after Hillary Clinton had already lost to Donald Trump, Obama canceled the Dakota Access Pipeline. He'd already canceled Keystone. Better late than never, he canceled Dakota Access. I was at Standing Rock at the time, just leaving, in fact, and it was a really uh, incredible moment, uh, just such excitement. You know, but honestly, it was pretty meaningless when you think about it because we all knew that Trump, president-elect at the time. he was. We all knew that he would reauthorize DAPL as soon as he got into office, and he did. I think one of his first things, he reauthorized Keystone and the Dakota Access Pipeline. So even though we won and then lost those fights, Obama, his canceling of Keystone and DAPL did send an important message that climate change needs to be taken seriously. You know, that message basically was that, that, old, that oil pipelines are are taking the U.S. and our planet in the wrong direction. And, um, you know, the if, if the Biden administration wants to kind of revive that thread from the Obama years, of which Biden was a big part, the logical scientific next step is to cancel both DAPL and Keystone. Now, it's it bothers me that for some reason the national media tends to remember Biden's pledge on Keystone but not on DAPL. So um, Steph Feldman, she was the uh, campaign's policy director. Um, I think this was back in May. Uh, she said, and I quote, Biden strongly opposed the Keystone Pipeline in the last administration, stood alongside President Obama and Secretary Kerry to reject it in 2015, 
and will proudly stand in the Roosevelt Room again as president to stop it for good by rescinding the, X, the Keystone XL pipeline permit. All right, so that's great. And that stance, again, has been you know, covered by the national media. And you know, so much so that a lot of insiders speculate that John Kerry, you know, again, now appointed by Joe Biden to serve as the climate czar, that Kerry will make uh, canceling Keystone the administration's second major climate action after rejoining the Paris Agreement. And that's all really good. But if the Biden administration chooses to cancel Keystone without canceling DAPL, well, you know, that would send the message that Joe Biden is a hypocrite. And if he, if he does fail to cancel Dapple, Biden should expect significant pushback from a whole lot of people, people who supported him, people who oppose pipelines and also whose top concern is now the climate crisis. But, you know, I, I don't think Biden's a hypocrite. I'm going to stand up for him here. I remain hopeful that he will do the right thing on Dapple as well as on Keystone, you know, especially given his direct and strong statements of opposition to Dapple while in Iowa. And again, I don't know why these don't get a lot of mentions in the national media, but they're pretty strong. So two of Biden's anti-Dakota Access Pipeline statements are recorded on videos uh, shot by bold Iowa's climate bird dogs last year. Um, one was August 20th at Living History Farms. Uh, Kathy Burns asks Biden to speak out against Dapple, and he responds saying, I opposed it to begin with. Let's uh, listen to that exchange. Well, um, <laughs> I know a little bit hard to hear with all the background noise, but he said, I opposed it to begin with. And then last fall on November 11th, actually, after a CNN forum in Grinnell College, I asked Joe Biden if he would issue a statement against the proposal to double the flow of oil through Dapple. Well, it was kind of a, a funny moment, but also a really strong statement by Biden. Let's let's listen to that. All, all you guys and I were pains in the neck. You know that? I know that. I <laughs> want a personal statement from you. I want you to sign it. Take my word, but I've never broken my word. I've been opposed to the pipeline to begin with. The last thing we need is really dirty crude coming from Canada to get through here this or is anywhere North else. Dakota. No, I got it. I'm just, but it, it's from the north. And, 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 and the Dakota oil is the same way. It's high sulfur content. Folks, that's not the direction we should be moving. We should move in the opposite direction. So, you know, there's Biden uh, <laughs> uh, saying, well, it, it was pretty funny, actually, that he started off by saying, all you guys in Iowa are, are pains in the neck. You know that. And I, I was standing right next to him. And I said, yeah, I know that. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, Biden continues, take my word, I've never broken my word. I've been opposed to the pipeline to begin with. The last thing we need is really dirty crude coming from Canada. Okay, so he knows I was talking about Dakota Access because that's the issue. We have been pushing him on Dakota Access pipeline all the way across Iowa, you know, since May, since he first announced on May 1st. So he knows what we're talking about. We made it really clear. I think he just got mixed up as to where the oil was coming from. And when I corrected him saying it's from North Dakota, he kind of, you know, finds a way to save face on that. Yeah, it's from the north. And then he says Dakota oil's the same way. It's high sulfur content. That's not the direction we should be moving. We should be moving in the opposite direction. That's what Biden said. This is not the direction we should be moving. We should be moving in the opposite direction. You know, 
put all that together, it's a clear statement of opposition to the Dakota Access Pipeline, which he says, again, to Kathy Burns earlier in the summer, I have opposed from the beginning. So if he has opposed, I mean, honestly, this is a stronger statement against Dapple than his statement against Keystone. And if, if he's going to cancel the Keystone Pipeline, this is the next logical step. And again, I know it's a different situation. You've got oil coming from Canada, crossing a U.S. border, as opposed to oil coming from North Dakota. But as Biden points out, it's from the north, uh, and it's got a high sulfur content, and we need to be going in the opposite direction. So, you know, he, um, he had better do that. And I, I'm cautiously optimistic that he will. But I think it's really important for those of us who have been fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline to continue to push to make sure it happens. So, uh, you know, it's also somewhat encouraging that John Kerry is, uh, I know there's a lot of mixed feelings about John Kerry as climate czar, but I mean, Kerry has been in the past really outspoken about the urgency of climate change. Here, here he is in 2015, and I'll quote, uh, the reality is that this decision and this is a decision relevant to Keystone, could not be made solely on the numbers, jobs that would be created, dirty fuel that would be transported here, or carbon pollution that would ultimately be unleashed. The U.S. cannot ask other nations to make tough choices to address climate change if we are unwilling to make them ourselves. End of quote. And that's key, folks. You know, Kerry, again, I'm presuming if anything, his commitment to doing something about climate change has deepened. Certainly, I will say this. What we noticed uh, in Joe Biden from earlier in the campaign, back in May of last year, to uh, throughout the summer into the fall, into early, uh, early, early this year, just before the caucuses, we noticed a, a firming up of his commitment to do something about climate. And I'd say if Kerry said that back in 2015, I can only imagine that he is more committed. And again, if the U.S. Is, is going to ask other nations to make tough choices, it has to make tough choices as well. And again, you know, rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, that's a great first step. But remember, as Cory Booker told us back during the campaign, rejoining Paris is kindergarten. Okay, so great. Let's get through kindergarten. <laughs> Let's get that one accomplished and then move on to first grade. And that would be canceling the Keystone Pipeline and the Dakota Access Pipeline. They are both, as, as Biden points out, they're both carrying dirty crude. They're both coming from the north. And as we know, as we know, a lot of that oil is headed to export. And again, if we're going to, you know, the other thing is, I, I want to talk more about this in a, in a, in a, a future show, but, but the, um, a, lot of, um, a lot of the pressure to bail out on more pipelines and expanding pipelines is economic. The economics just aren't there. Again, what did I say earlier? That the uh, the province of Alberta, Canada, pumped one point it was a one point five billion into the uh, into the Trans Canada's Keystone Pipeline, their portion of it, and then another six billion dollar loan. It's just crazy. So anyway, we've um we've got some hope here, folks. Let's uh, keep pushing the new administration to do the right thing on Keystone and on Dapple. When we come back in a minute. Joe Gantz is going to join us. We're going to be talking about his new film, Ending Disease, exploring stem cell therapy here on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, 
artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. At East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, patio seating, curbside pickup, and carry-out. Hawk also serves fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q table.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you progressive voices from America's heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. I'd like to thank some of our other sponsors, including Story County Veterinary Clinic. Uh, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience caring for all creatures, great and small. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page, or just call Dr. Holding at 515-232-232. 8766. That's 232-8766. Support for this program also provided by Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Local food security is becoming more and more important to both urban and rural residents. Information can be found at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. That's birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, hey, uh, Joe, Joe Gantz is uh, our guest this, uh, this segment of the program. Joe is a documentary filmmaker whose film, American Winter, exposed the human impact of poverty. Joe is also known for the Emmy Award-winning HBO series Taxi Cab Confessions, and he's about to finish another documentary called Race to Save the World, profiling Americans on the front lines of fighting the climate crisis. Joe, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So, Ending Disease... Your new documentary explores stem cell research, and you follow 10 stories of patients who try stem cell therapy to treat debilitating illnesses. So um, where exactly did the idea for this film come from? Well, about 20 years ago, uh, President Bush outlawed uh, many of the most important aspects of stem cell research. And at that time, um, it the research was uh, essentially stopped. And then many people in California who had kids that had type 1 diabetes or parents that had Alzheimer's um, knew that stem cell research was the best chance of a cure. So they got a ballot measure on the ballot in California uh, to devote $3 billion to stem cell research. And that passed. 16 years ago. And then about five years ago, I began to think, wonder whether, you know, this was creating cures uh, as had been promised and how successful it was. So I started interviewing scientists and um, about the, the different clinical trials they were working on and the, the cures they were working on for different diseases. 
and then I asked them if I could follow their clinical trial in progress. At first they said, no, you'll never get permission. There's always a university involved and a hospital involved, a pharmaceutical company involved, and they do not want uh, you know, film crew showing that because it doesn't always work out. And uh, then there was one trial for uh, retinitis pigmentosa, a disease that causes blindness, and the scientist owned his therapy. And when I asked him, he just gave me the name of Rosie, the woman in the film that started out uh, completely blind, clinically blind. And I asked her if I could follow her through the, her trial, and she said yes. And I followed her, and then I made a trailer out of her story, and I showed it to the different scientists. And one by one, uh, they came on board and decided that they uh, trusted me to follow their clinical trial in progress. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty amazing. And uh, and I, I did watch the trailer, so I know I know the uh, the patient you're talking about, and I and just some of the other people who are featured in the film, who again are are referenced in the trailer. Some very very strong um, stories, some really disturbing stories. And some really hopeful um, conclusions. So, um, for uh, for folks in the audience who might not be up to speed on stem cell therapy, can you give us just a, like a minute or two overview of what we're talking about? Yes, it's described better in the film than I would describe it, uh, uh, not being a scientist. But essentially, medicine is fundamentally changing from treatments that are given over a lifetime to one-time cures. And these one-time cures essentially uh, use stem cell uh, or CAR T cell or antibodies to use the body's own method of creating cells and, and fighting disease to, uh, to be much more effective in creating a, a, a permanent a cure for cancer uh, or to heal a spinal cord injury that that would cause someone to be a quadriplegic or to um, bring back, you know, cells in the retina that have been lost. Uh, and, you know, injuries uh, and diseases to the central nervous system uh, throughout all of human history, there's been no way to improve that. When when they start going bad, there, there's nothing that turns that around. And now for the first time with uh, stem cell and regenerative medicine, that is possible and uh, is happening. And, and not, so that is uh, unbelievably uh, uh, encouraging. And then, you know, also they're coming up with cures to certain types of cancers and they, they, those cures will stay in your system. Uh, and so if the cancer cell comes back before it can grow into a tumor or whatever, uh, the, the, the stem cell or CAR T cell that's there will, will wipe it out. So wow. it doesn't come back. That's so pretty, th that's incredibly encouraging. Yeah, and, and very innovative, very, very um, I mean, who, whoever thought we'd be here 40, 50 years ago, but there, it's, it, it comes um, not without some controversy. I, I, and there's a reason George Bush uh, banned it 20 years ago, uh, and there are still people who are very, very strongly opposed to it. How do you respond to some of those concerns? Well, um, in the film, 
I chose not to make this an argument pro or con uh, in terms of any of these religious reasons. Um, I, I don't know that people's religious views are really open to being debated. So I, I chose to basically follow 10 different clinical trials in progress for brain cancer, breast cancer, leukemia, lymphoma, HIV, spinal cord injury, uh, eye disease, retinitis pigmentosa, and skid, babies born without an immune system. Mm, wow. And just follow the patient and their families uh, through this trial uh, with their eyesight on the line, their ability to move on their line. Often they they're had terminal cancer, so their life was on the line. And just show that and let people make up their own mind whether this was you know worthwhile or not um coincidentally of the patients i followed many of them were uh catholics who were quite religious and when they were chosen for this trial you know they had heard uh that there was controversy around uh stem cell uh, research and regenerative medicine. So they, they, you know, sometimes address that uh, from their perspective. And uh, that that's very interesting when they, they talk about it and they're in the midst of these trials. And that's probably, that's probably a wise uh, strategy not to dig into the religious aspects in the film. Although you will probably get some pushback once the film is out. And I understand it's going to be released next week, I believe, correct? This, this week, uh, coming right. Friday, yeah. it's available, and one can go to uh, this, the website www.endingdisease.com if you want to get tickets. It's a virtual theatrical release, so um, it's theaters who are releasing it virtually, so yeah. you get to watch it okay. online, and, and you have once you buy a ticket, you have two weeks to watch the four episodes. That makes a lot of sense in the uh, age of the pandemic, which hopefully, again, will will be beyond sometime next year. Um, speaking of the pandemic, uh, I mean, the, the film's title, Ending Disease, um, again, some might see that as implying that this, this technology has the capacity to end all disease. I think that's probably not the case. Uh, I mean, the list you gave of the, of the diseases that can, it can impact, that's, that's huge. But we're not talking about ending the common cold or the flu or even the coronavirus, correct? Well, I am not talking about, well, in the film, uh, the, the, the top scientist for stem cell research in the world is Irv Weissman at Stanford. And he, he does list at one point uh, many of the diseases that are going to be uh, eliminated eventually due to stem cell research and regenerative medicine. And the list is, is incredible. You know, it's, um, so there, this is going to fundamentally change medicine um, from treatments over a lifetime to one-time cures. And it's most of the, these cures are in clinical trial. When I, when I started making this film, there were 40 clinical trials using regenerative medicine in progress, and I followed 10 of them. By now, there are 90 clinical trials in progress. 
The thing is that there's three phases to a clinical trial, and for a potential cure to get through a clinical trial, uh, all three phases, it takes about 15 years. Wow. So the thing is that most of these potential cures are still in clinical trial, and that's why you see them in this in this film. You see the potential of this uh, very powerfully because you, we're following these trials in progress. Right. They will not be available to the public for another two to five years, but by a, five or ten years, people will look back uh, at the medicine that's being practiced now, and it will seem primitive by comparison. Wow. You know, there won't be chemo, radiation, be far fewer operations, and also medicine is going to be far cheaper because it's one-time cures right. rather than treating someone over a lifetime. Well, Joe, thank you uh, so much for joining us. Um, folks, we've been talking to Joe Gantz, the uh, uh, filmmaker who is uh, releasing this week the documentary Ending Disease. And you can watch that. It's available online. You can get your tickets at endingdisease.com. Do I have that right, Joe? Yes. Endingdisease.com. Again, Joe, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Folks, when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, stopping a coup, which uh, some say we did, but some say also that we need to be vigilant going forward. This is Ed Fallon. We'll be back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Findlay. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Progressive Voices from America's Heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store, and it's open seven days a week. The cafe is also open seven days a week for lunch and supper and for breakfast on the weekends. You can dine in. They've, gone, they've done a great job to make it safe, or you can also order using Gateway's takeout service. Also, it's that time of the year to think about Gateway gift cards. For every $50 gift card you buy, you get an additional $10 gift card. Check it out, folks, at gatewaymarket.com. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret, located in downtown Des Moines. Noche features both national acts and local performers, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Tina Haas Findlay, and Nick Leo. Noche also offers a cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. You can catch many of the performances on Noche's live stream, and the owners have done a great job at making sure their setup works in protecting visitors. 
musicians, and staff during the COVID-19 pandemic. That's Noche, Jazz, and Cabaret. All right, leading up to the election, uh, groups across the country were literally preparing for a potential coup. I was, uh, I was truly amazed, really, and, and impressed by how much effort went into figuring out how to respond if Donald Trump did indeed succeed in stealing the election. God knows he tried. <laughs> and this, um, you know, this, this intentional and, and very broad-based uh, planning, pre-election planning, it was important. And again, a lot of different groups were doing it, not just groups, the media, um, institutions. And um, one coalition called Choose Democracy, I thought they put it very well. Quote, stopping a coup with a one-off rally is like stopping an army with a pea shooter. And so they planned. I was part of some of these conversations. Uh, organizations, again, unions, elected officials, community leaders. And, you know, it wasn't just Democrats. There were Republicans and independent voters involved as well. And, you know, they were even talking about a national strike, uh, consumer boycotts. And those are, those are huge undertakings. And, and, you know, they aren't usually excess, successful because they require such a high level of organizing skill and also, of course, a high level of buy-in. You can't have a strike or a boycott and only have a few people participating. So I, I you know, and I honestly thought Trump, if you listen to this show, you knew that. I honestly thought that Trump had a shot of pulling off a coup. If not through the courts, then through state legislatures or even Congress. Uh, and it's clear, I think, I mean, I think it's clear to everybody that Trump would have liked to have pulled off a coup. You know, but several things worked against him. You know, most significantly, Biden's big victory, that left no doubt who the winner was. And despite Trump's efforts to stack the courts, uh, you know, there seems to be still enough judicial integrity left that courts across the country shot down all but one of his 35-plus lawsuits. You know, wow, so much for winning, right? <laughs> um, the media, even Fox News, for the most part, they were prepared to attack any Trump attempt at a coup as we saw in headline after headline, story after story, uh, I mean, they called him out every time there was something false. I mean, even Twitter, Facebook, uh, those pl you know, every venue was kind of on board with making sure that that truth was going to be spoken. And I, you know, I'm, I'm often very critical of the media, but I think they did a good job in that case. Even Fox, and so um, you know, and then there were the Republican leaders. You know, gradually and timidly at first, you know, you had George Bush, you had Mitt Romney, a few others. They and they began to make it clear that they stood with our election system, with the rule of law, and not with Donald Trump. And you know, it took more and more time for some of those less brave Republicans to come forward. But the the bravest ones, in my opinion, were those election officials in swing states that took a lot of flack from Trump's base. Some of them even got phone calls and flack from Trump himself. And some of those Republican election officials in swing states, they even got death threats. It's crazy. But, you know, it's, um, it's emphatically clear to me that the level of preparedness among the grassroots uh, also played a key role in defeating the threat of a coup. I, I don't, I don't, it's hard to say how much, but I'm sure it made a difference. So I want to quote to you further from a message I received from Choose Democracy last week. Quote, we started Choose Democracy to be prepared if it was necessary for national resistance to a coup. As an effort, we're not anti-Trump or pro-Biden. 
We teamed up across political spectrums to be pro-democracy and stop a coup. Democracy has been severely tested and is the worst for wear, but it never reached a breaking point that required a large-scale national mobilization. End of quote. You know, it wasn't just the brainstorming and the planning and the coalition building that happened before the election. It was especially important what happened immediately after the election. And again, here's an example. I'll quote from Choose Democracy again. We are thankful for the fast-paced local resistance to initial coup efforts. The most dramatic was the organizing work in Michigan after the biggest post-election scandal erupted, and that was two Michigan electorates attempted to thieve millions of votes from majority black Detroit. Hours of heated testimony organized by mostly black organizers in Wayne County made them switch back. Again, that's, that's a strong message. <laughs> and, uh, and, and again, it shows that, you know, folks were getting ready for Election Day and what might happen, but they were also understanding they needed to be prepared beyond Election Day. And interestingly, the other side, if I can say, which pretty much means Donald Trump, they weren't prepared. Again, I, I'm just loving this message from Choose Democracy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote from them again. Coup plotters failed to put together and carry out any organized plan. Jared Kushner was scrounging for a legal team on election night, and his legal team never put forward a cogent argument. The political strategy of telling lies didn't translate to political organizing of any coherent approach that would result in Trump staying in office. Ultimately, Trump never seized power. He just said he would stay in power. And this is consistent with Trump's ability to control narrative. He's good at claiming dramatic headlines, poor at detailed follow-through. A coup in the U.S. is made much harder because political power is widely distributed in local and state governments and courts. And those systems showed their independence from presidential sway. We, in this case, again, choose democracy. We want to thank people in those systems who defended that independence, poll workers, election officials, electorates, and all those who kept our election system trustworthy. Whereas Democratic actors faced no pushback from their base for not supporting the coup, Republicans were tested and faced repercussions. So, you know, that's really important. You know, there's a, there's a huge partisan divide in this country, and I'm going to try to do my part by a project called 52 Conversations with Iowa Trump Voters. Uh, next year, we'll interview a Trump voter every week on this program. I'll also be sitting down with them for a one-on-one -on -one conversation and writing a blog. And I think um, we have a long ways to go to restore confidence in each other, confidence in our country, confidence in our democracy. You know, and uh, again, I, I, one, one thing that Democrats who are un unhappy about Republicans and Trump supporters should realize is, you know, it was Republicans who took the brunt of the um, threats and criticism and scare tactics that came at them if and when they stood up to President Trump, if and when they said, hey, we're going to stand by the integrity of our election system. Um, the, the, uh, the attorney general in Georgia, Republican, um, <laughs> he got a lot of flack for not uh, flipping the election to George, to uh, to uh, Donald Trump, and that again all over the all over the all over the country, Republicans standing up for democracy. This is encouraging, folks. 
Uh, finally, uh, just this, a word of warning from the Choose Democracy message, again, which I, I, I resonate with. Quote, we are confident Trump will continue with outrageous headline-grabbing behavior. There are fundamental issues that need addressing. We witnessed a scorched-earth policy, a mass refusal to push back on falsehoods, and a withering attack on democracy. It is not going away. The distrust and distortions have taken root in much of the country's psyche. They're right. And again, that's why I feel very strongly we have to begin to reach out. You know, and you can't you can't go to a Trump voter and say, look, I, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure you're a racist and a misogynist and stupid, but let's have a conversation. No, you have to start from the premise that they're not that different than you are, that they have, for one reason or another, they decided to support Donald Trump. Uh, I, I think we have to have those conversations and we have to try to identify that common ground. So, yeah, a coup could happen in the U.S. Uh, I want to close by regarding this, by referencing this um, the story in The Guardian. Quote, the key ingredient for a classic, classic coup <clears throat> is a politically motivated military. Was, that was absent from the start, though not for want of Trump's efforts. And we certainly saw Trump try to do, try to take over control of the security apparatus in this country, the FBI, the Department of Defense, Homeland Security. To continue to quote The Guardian, the 2020 experience has raised concerns about how U.S. democracy would weather a closer election and a more disciplined group determined to wield the power of the state to steal it. The militias, who were not coordinated enough to emerge as the intimidatory force Trump hoped for, could be stronger on the next occasion. So yeah, there's... Um, we defeated a coup attempt this time. And we meaning all of us, not just Democrats, but a lot of good Republicans as well. Not just the grassroots, but the media. Uh, so many people were involved in making sure that this election was not stolen. That's encouraging. But again, public confidence has been shaken. Uh, we see there are flaws in the system. We need to be vigilant. We need to be on top of this. All right, so hey, when we come back from a short break, folks, Pasha Morgan is going to join us. And we're going to talk about the big question about how we go about fixing policing in the U.S. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got an elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Kim Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you progressive voices from America's heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. 
Support for this program comes from Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. At Hawk, 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, curbside pickup, and carry-out. More information at hawktable.com. Thanks also to Bold Iowa, founded in 2015, to build rural-urban coalitions to address climate change, to prevent the abuse of eminent domain, and to protect Iowa's soil air, and water. Bold Iowa is committed to using peaceful, nonviolent means to push for change. More information at boldiowa.com. Hey, let's, um, let's welcome Pasha Morgan to the program. Pasha is a Des Moines, Iowa community activist and outspoken leader for peace and justice. Pasha, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ed. How are you? Good. Hey, so in the wake of extensive protests coast to coast and in the wake of continued examples of black victims of police violence, people are saying defund the police. What exactly does that mean? Well, actually, um, that would depend on who you talk to, to be quite honest. Um, For me, uh, defunding the police means exactly that. Uh, It means to take funding away from particularly local and county police um, or local police departments and reallocate those funds um, to do more to be an incentive to prevent crime than actually be a response to crime, which is really all police departments do um, in general. Unless I, I haven't talked to very many people where crime has been prevented by police officers, um, just they respond to crimes that have already happened. So how does that work? You you, you would um, you look at the same level of funding, but it would shift to a some other mechanism for maintaining, uh, you know, for protecting the people against crime. How would that work? Absolutely. Uh, well, it would work by it's study after study. We've done studies for. There's been commissions. The very first commission that was set up to uh, look at policing and the corruption in policing is in 1929. Um, that was the that was the that was the first that was the first commission that was that was set up, um, and so that tells us that it's been almost a hundred years that we've realized there's a problem in policing. Um, so in a hundred years, we've done nothing except for throw good money at bad policing, uh, expecting positive results instead of looking at the looking at the studies, looking at the root of of crime, which most of the time ends up being lo and behold, poverty and mental illness and, 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 and these things that we can actually use funds to, to lift up or to, to give people um, a lift up, a hand up, to give people help that they need instead of just responding to the results of, the, of, of the systemic basically invalidation of an entire group of people. All right. Well, let me ask you this. Let me give you a couple of scenarios. What happens when uh, a little old lady uh, has somebody break into her house and she calls and says, hey, there's a man breaking into my house. What do I do? How, For community how, policing? A yeah. community policing. Okay. Community policing has happened more times than not. It's happened, the most prominent example that we probably know of would be Black Panthers. But the Black Panthers actually set up their policing to protect their neighborhoods from police officers. Right. But when they did, 
their, when they did their own community policing and it's shown in city after city, small town. You know what, when I say this, let me go back, because when I say this, it's always seems like a radical idea. However, it's an idea that happens all of the time, all over America in smaller cities and towns. They are self-policed. They do not have standing police departments, stations, or even police officers. They have volunteers. They have volunteers or they have community policing, which then, which then in turn takes care of things like that. But again, if we address the root of the problem, which in a lot of times is poverty, mental illness, different things like that, we won't have problems with little old ladies having their houses broken into. Right. Good point, because we, we, that, we're killing the root. Yeah, that burglar would not need to break into Granny's house to steal her jewelry because he or she would have a job. Most um, crimes are not most crimes that are committed, except for the very heinous of crimes that are committed by people who life has broke them one way or the other. Ninety nine percent, ninety nine point nine percent of the time. And that causes fractures and mental health and all kinds of other things. So we're not talking about those crimes. We're not talking about serial murderers or rapists or we're talking about the every average day crime, small burglaries, petty theft, vandalism, things like that that can't that are the majority, not even the majority of what police officers actually do, because those are the majority of the crimes that they respond to. The majority of what police officers do are hunt you and I down in order to secure revenue for their perspective. Um, city or town with tickets, minor tra- traffic violation infra- yeah. infractions. Well, I, um, I know there are some cities that, that have a significant portion of their of their revenue comes from traffic tickets. A, you know, most cities a significant amount of their revenue comes from um, from their from their everyday but, layman law. But to the, but to that to that point, what do you do about uh, speeding? What do, what do you do about if you have a chronic problem where people are going 50 miles, 50 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone and endangering people, how do you, what do you, how do you deal with that? How often, how often, well, I don't think that often that happens. I don't think that that is, that is something that is a, statistically speaking, that is not, that is not something that is a serious public safety concern. There are countries all over the world that don't have speed limits. Or they have speed limits that are, that, that you learn, like in, I took my driver's test in Germany. You learn what the speed limits are in residential areas. That's just what it is. Yeah. And, and, and so a certain, but much like they do um, in other things in Europe, um, much is given, much is required, and it ends up that people normally stand to the task, which is, again, why even though there's no legal drinking limit, you don't have a nearly a higher problem with teenage alcoholism in Europe as you do in America. Mm. So, so I think it's a it's a matter of how it's a matter of of it's a matter of psychology. It's always a matter of psychology. If you have a people or anybody who you are, I can't remember which psychologist it was. I'm sorry, I'm, I digress, but I can't remember <laughs> which psychologist it was. But there was an example of, and there's there's also many little, I don't know, yeah colloquialisms about tying an elephant with a rope right if you started if you started young that's how you feel and so they they, you end up they end up you being able to be controlled by very by less but if you if you allow basically studies show that people will 
the honor system works better than harsh enforcement. It shows that in society, it shows that in parenting, it show, in, in parenting and psychology, it shows that authoritarian parenting um, uh, yields much less um, productive results in children rearing than, than, more, um, than a, a good combination of both. So what I'm saying is, if you hold people with an iron fist, if you have a cop around every corner, if everything is about um, hiding from the police or trying not to be over-policed, then you create a society mm. in which crime is prevalent. And you think we've done that? Yes, we've yeah. done that. We've yeah. done that over the last hundred years. The, the, uh, the, um, uh, the Wickersham Commission in 1929, the Knapp Commission, which was a few years later, the right. current, all of these commissions are basically the NAP and the, if you don't look anything else up, the NAP and the Wickersham Commission, the two of them, all they did was show that heavy policing does nothing except right. for create more crime. Well, certainly the war on poverty and the war on drugs have, uh, have, have, have been a big part of the problem more recently. Yeah. Yes. And that was one of the that was one of the results actually of the Kerner Commission was the fact and that I don't remember when that was the sixties sometime was the fact that 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 over the heavily policing areas results in a a broader spectrum of crime and a better criminal. Yeah, right. Hey, I just got a couple minutes left here, Pasha, but let me ask you uh, one thing that has happened in Iowa in response to the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, Governor Kim Reynolds signed a bill last May, I believe it was, or June, that banned the use of chokeholds by law enforcement. Good step? Mm -hmm. Positive step? It is a positive step. Technically. Okay, and what Technically, about... Technically, it's a positive step. But the problem with this is it's more lip service. Again, I have to point out that we've been doing this and as far as investigating police since the very first, since the very first commission that I could find was the Wickersham Commission in 1929. Right. This has been almost 100 years. Right. So nothing, no new little developments or no new um, little steps in that direction are going to do anything until we actually stop giving our police officers um, ex-military equipment and then incentivizing them to use it. Um, and that ends up with things like no-knock warrants, SWAT teams in, in towns. Why in the world does a 20,000-person town need a SWAT team? Um, and and it, 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 we need to end qualified immunity, which basically says that um, it's, what qualified immunity is basically it says that if it's unconstitutional, if it's ruled as unconstitutional, then you cannot do it. It's supposed to protect um, police officers and, and, and people in civil service from being sued every I was a medic. We have a law, we have a law for us, it's called the Good Samaritan Law. It was a couple other ones. But that one was a good one specifically if we were off duty. So where we could stop and help somebody if nothing if we broke a sideboy process while giving them CPR and they couldn't sue us then for breaking it. So um, so there's these laws that protect civil service and that is a good thing. However, with the qualified immunity, the problem with that is if it hasn't happened before, then then they 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 say, well, um, well we, it hasn't been proven unconstitutional because it's never happened before. So cases like the officer who was shooting from the old, a, a, a fleeing suspect from an overpass and caused several several accidents to happen, and one person actually died, was let go because of qualified immunity. Yeah, because wow. it hadn't happened before. Because no police officer had thought against all training. That's what brings me back to the, yeah. the, the different training and the illegal chokeholds. Regardless so, of the fact that that was against all of the training of that department, 
and that they did it anyway and that they caused the death of somebody because nobody had thought, hey, this is a good idea because it's the stupidest thing you could possibly think of because nobody thought of that before and nobody had done it before. This officer was let off due to qualified immunity. Well, Pastor, we're going to have so to run... Oh, sorry, sorry. Go. I was just going to say there's yeah. several steps that we can take to actually move us in the right direction. Okay. Yeah, so well, we have to rethink policing and all. And I know some of these steps are going to be suggested to the next session of the Iowa legislature, and I'd love to get your take on on those uh, those proposals once the legislature starts uh, moving forward. Hopefully, they'll move forward and not just ignore again. But um, yeah, that'll that'll be so. Maybe we can have you back on to talk about that because there's uh, there's certainly a lot more to say about this. Uh, Pasha, I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much, Ed. I, I enjoy every time I get to talk to you. Folks, we've been talking to Pasha Morgan here in the Fallon Forum. When we come back, Kathy Burns is going to join us. We're going to have our last garden Q&A session of the season. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, no-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. They've been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yep, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you progressive voices from America's heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, a quick shout out to our anchor sponsor, Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store, and it's open seven days a week. It's also open seven days a week for the cafe, and you can get uh, lunch and dinner seven days a week and breakfast on the weekends. And if you don't want to dine in, there's some limited dining. You can also do the uh, takeout service. And of course... Is that time of the year where we're thinking about gifts for people? Maybe, I don't know. So Gateway has this great idea. Uh, $50 gift card, you get $10 additional. Uh, to, so you get, a, you get a $50 gift card for your friend, and then you get $10 for yourself. Not a bad deal. Anyway, check it out, folks. Gateway Marketing Cafe here in Des Moines. All right, well, again, welcome back to the program. And with us, uh, Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And I believe we're going to do our final garden Q&A of the season. Am I right there? I think so. All we right. never know. We never know. <laughs> we might throw <laughs> Will it be one the final in. one? Um, there, you know, people's garden questions have dwindled, similar to how a lot of people's gardening practices have dwindled, <laughs> dwindled through the through the colder month. And we are we're on, right now as we tape this. It's the last day of November. When you see this, it might be, or when you hear this, it might be December. It will be December. It will be. Yeah. So um, people have a few questions, and a lot of them have to do with cold weather. So, um, one of the first questions was, I have Swiss chard and collards under a three milliliter low tunnel, uh, three milliliter plastic. And does anyone have experience with the lowest possible overnight temps? I want to make sure to harvest 
the remaining before a night gets too low. Thanks. Well, you know, kale and collards can go down to, what, 10 degrees? Brussels sprouts also 10 degrees. Swiss chard is also pretty hearty. I don't know if it gets quite down to 10 degrees, but it might. Um, I've never pushed it that far. <laughs> I did put the blanket over it for tonight. Okay. But if you've got a tunnel, again, that, that gives you an additional leg up on Mother Nature. Right. But um, we still have Swiss chard, collards, kale, arugula, spinach. Mm -hmm. That's not bad for the last day of November. And so. we are covering. Uh, we cover not. We don't cover the collards no, or the kale. No, they're too tall. Finally gave up on covering the Swiss chard. Had some tonight. Um, but we're still covering the arugula and uh, spinach. So. Another cold weather question. Somebody has rosemary uh, that they presumed would have died by now, but they were surprised and wondering if it's a perennial. And it is in zone 7 to 10. We In Iowa, we're pretty much in zone 5. Um, it says it can sometimes withstand zone 6. I've wintered over rosemary year to year to year and uh, frankly haven't even done much with it. Kind of depends on where mm, you are. Yeah. I, I have I've not done that, but I'm. I think it's about time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, our rosemary Rosemary's needs to get great, robu more robust anyway. Yeah, it's a great plant. Yeah. yeah. Um, somebody has a truckload of mulch that they didn't need, and uh, were willing. They were willing to deliver it for free. So, common, uh, you know, thing to think about if somebody offers you free mulch. You should ask some questions right. first. Don't just say, yes, deliver that mulch to my yard. Beware of Greeks bearing gifts of mulch. <laughs> there's there's a, a Trojan horse kind of a thing. That's right. Jump out and slay your slay Speaking your of vegetables. Trojan horses, we had a, a stable offer to bring us a load of horse manure. And we said no because we know that would come with uh, lots of sawdust and who knows mm. what else. And we're very selective about our manure. We, <laughs> we uh, choose only the finest uh, road apples. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's very possible that that mulch might be something you want to say no to. Right, just the choicest chunks for us. Um, if, if somebody does have mulch, you should ask, if, you know, what what is it made of? Is it wood chip? Is it leaves? It, you know, what kind of leaves? Uh, if it's walnut leaves, say no. Mm. Um, what is Oak it clean? Leaves, or, say no. You know, is other stuff mixed with it? Has it been treated with chemicals? Sometimes um, people have a lot of landscape debris, and they mow or rake it up and use it for mulch if it's been heavily treated with chemicals that's a no yeah are there intense. zombie eggs living inside of it <laughs> those hatch in your garden is shot anyway <laughs> oh my i i won't be able to sleep tonight thinking of that zombie eggs in your mulch <laughs> that's terrible um you know this isn't a question that we saw on one of the gardening websites or forums this is our question why <laughs> why why do people like landscape fabrics so much why the expletive do people like landscape fabric so much that's what yes that's, that's what I, that's my question remember fcc <laughs> right yeah why did we just, we just fooled them um <laughs> well it you know the the concept is you lay this fabric down over where you don't want weeds to either grow up or seed to grow down and frankly, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. It might work for a while, but it, you think of it. You want to grow something there eventually, and you're putting landscape fa fabric on Case in point, we were tilling a new bed at somebody's house uh, this fall. Didn't know what to expect. And what, about an inch down, two inches down, we came across landscape fabric and also those sharp uh, staples that are used yeah. to put it in place. And uh, yeah, it was just a mess. 
you know, and it, again, like you said, it, there's, there were weeds growing all above it for at least an inch or so. Well, it's very seldom made with any natural material. Every once in a while it's made with something that is recycled, but it's going to be recycled plastic of some kind. Um, so, you know, think about it. There's no way for your soil to distribute its natural nutrients and microorganisms inside there. It's a barrier against any of that. Uh, it's less effective over time. If you're serious about gardening, you rotate your crops. Well, if you have a big hunk of landscape fabric and you dig a little hole for your your rosemary and you dig a little hole for your for your something else or or your artichoke or whatever you're not going to have everything in the same place the next year eventually you're going to tear that thing all to pieces so um it's it's not a good system air and water really can't can't get through it effectively if you use uh landscape fabric that makes you a bad person is what kathy's saying no 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 we don't i I don't like to judge (laughs) i know no it's a you know uh I know the whole motivation is to control weeds, mm-hmm. but you know, in in the long run, it's better to invest a little bit of time in trying to get those weeds out. You know, the, once you start reducing weed seed populations, I mean, we don't we have what fifty beds, and we don't mm-hmm. have uh, we don't have too many problems with weeds. No, yeah. no. And think about it. if you put landscape fabric down and then some kind of decorative rock for your landscaping. Um, debris will settle in between those rocks and seeds can grow in there anyway. So you're in the same spot and then you have to pull that up and then you have to pull the landscape fabric up and it's just a whole ordeal. We don't recommend landscape fabric unless there's some really urgent need for it. Even then, no. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, speaking of other irritating modern conveniences. We're on a roll tonight. What's the thing with leaf blowers? This is this is where I need to watch my FCC regulations. Leaf blowers. There are some legitimate uses, and and some people can really benefit if they have. Yeah, like self defense is a legitimate use for a leaf blower. <laughs> if you're being attacked by zombies that hatched from those eggs that came in the mulch, you should have said no to. Then some, a leaf blower is what you want. Some people have a physical reason or a time constraint, and it really makes it impossible for them to. Then do they it. should hire the neighborhood boy I, or girl. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, almost. Um, but it, it's true. It's uh, if you can't do it yourself, there are there are several kids in this neighborhood that were looking for work this year because they were having a hard time getting work with COVID, mm. and they would have been happy to come rake leaves this fall. I don't think anybody called them. Um, also, uh, you know, think of the noise. It's noise pollution. The the decibel level is over that of a well, lawnmower. Well, and so some of them are the 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 bigger ones are really loud. I mean, we yeah. we we have to close our windows when we had we had neighbors. Who spent five hours with a crew that came out and used very high-powered blowers, and you know, there's no way we can work in the front yard when that's going on. So. Well, what gets me too is someone who spends the money and buys the convenience product and has to store it and maintain it and plug it in or put the gas in it, and then they spend money to go to a a, a, a workout. Place uh, to go to their gym, mm-hmm. and so I—that's what I don't get. Um, so noise pollution, hearing loss. A lot of people wear the the headphones, but you know it's just not a convenience. Yeah, rakes. Woohoo! Long live rakes. Anyway, and teenage boys and girls. Yes. Yes. Hey, thanks again for uh, tuning in today, folks. Thanks, Kathy, for joining mm-hmm. us. Uh, 
Uh, thanks to uh, Joe Gantz and Pasha Morgan for being guests on this program today as well. And thanks to our production team of Kathy Burns and Sherry Herdina. Hey, folks, please subscribe to the Fallon Forum on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. Help us grow this network. You can follow us on Facebook as well. And also listen to us on about six other radio stations if you're in those areas. Again, thanks for joining us today. Uh, this is Ed Fallon, your host, uh, signing off from uh, Des Moines, Iowa, the heart of America's heartland.